Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Since Monday, we watched two tactical matchups decide the identity of the Champions League finalists. And in order to discuss both those games, as well as look ahead to the key games coming up during this weekend, I'm joined by Kristen Henage. Chris, I know it's really late for you, so I really appreciate you joining me tonight. It's, it's an absolute pleasure and partly my own fault for, for missing <laughs> your first email. Not a big deal at all. All right, so Chris, uh, let's, let's get right into it. So in section one, we're going to talk about of the two Champions League games. Let's start with the Bayern versus Atletico Madrid game from Tuesday, from yesterday. Um, the, as far as starting lineups go, pretty standard. I think there weren't too many surprises. No dropping of uh, Muller this time. Uh, he was in the starting 11 uh, in that 4-1-4-1 formation. Atletico Madrid set up in their regular 4-4-2. And the game itself was very uh, played out almost exactly like we expected. Uh, Bayern had way more of the possession. Uh, I mean, almost, I think at the end of the first half, we saw the average position of Torres and uh, Griezmann. They were both behind their own halfway line, and that gave you an idea of how deep Atletico were defending. But then the soccer punch, uh, a great goal involving build-up between uh, Griezmann and Torres, Griezmann putting it away, uh, really was the deciding factor in this game. Yeah, and and I think if you look at Atletico's last few Champions League games, they've not had more than sort of thirty four, thirty five percent possession across the board. It's it's mostly in the the high twenties at, at best. Right. That to me is is indicative of the team that you're watching and and their style, which is sit deep, soak things up, and and win. And uh, you know, Toby Alderweireld has talked about this that. Um, Diego Simeone taught him how to win, and that it was I actually taught right. him how to to play football. And and you see a lot of those qualities against Bayern. And, I mean, look, there, there's been quite heated debate today about expected goals and analytics and how that all plays into it. I think the the thing with Atletico is they're they're willing to take that risk. They're mm. willing to give the possession up um, and say to a team, look, see if you can play through it. See if you can find the gaps where we haven't left them. And the more that you do that, I think you manage to to foster a, a real kind of nerve and tension and pressure on your opponent without actually doing anything to contribute to the game in that sense and I imagine it's it's a bit like playing against a boa constrictor because the more <laughs> you, you struggle the the tighter the grip gets in that sense So do you think Chris that we're kind of seeing the next wave of the tactical change uh, you know in the mid 2000s 
there was a big focus on uh, the Barcelona style of play, and that continued until maybe two years ago, three years ago. Before that, it was the Mourinho stuff. Now we're coming back to the point. Uh, this year, we've seen Leicester City play 4-4-2, a different style than Atletico Madrid, but Atletico Madrid also play a 4-4-2, play very defensive, uh, and they might win the Champions League. So are we seeing the next wave of tactical change where the Barcelona style, the Arsenal style is being found out? Well, this is the thing. We, we talk about these things in kind of cycles and periods, and I think there's been a number of instances where we and, and colleagues in the industry have professed the death of be it Tiki Taka or, or Guardiola right. style. I, I don't think anything died. I think certainly they're, they're birthed. I think it's fair to say that. But I don't mm-hmm. think they die. I think maybe they diminish in popularity, which is, is potentially what we may see to a degree here. But then equally, that that in itself, that whole theory implies that it's very easy to do what Atletico do. It's actually not. Right. It's very difficult because you have to have not only an understanding between your group, you also have to have such kind of determination to stick to that and to not break from formation in that sense. Um, it's it's like the... You know, I can't think of the technical terms for it, but the, you know those Roman soldiers that would kind of huddle together and form like a tortoise type? Oh, yeah. It was called the phalanx, phalanx formation. Exactly. It, it's yeah. a similar notion to that if one breaks off the whole thing's ruined because you've then got a gap and it's a similar Mm -hmm. premise with with Simeone and and his Atletico team so I wouldn't say it's the death of anything what I would say is is that if a few of those chances go in if a few more bounces if they score the penalty then the game changes and and I think this is the the issue I have with the idea of of formations and tactics dying is that really the, the, the lines of success and failure are so thin that we're judging an entire shift based on millimeters of, of difference. Right. Well, we'll actually come back to that point in a second, but I do want to say I agree with what, a lot of you've, what you've said because it's not easy. I think a lot of us forget how difficult it is to do what Atletico has done because I was watching this game and they managed to really narrow down Bayern's play to long-range efforts. And even in those efforts... Every single time there was an Atletico player right in front of it. It wasn't a, it wasn't diving, desperation, blocking. These players knew exactly where they were gonna where they had to be in terms of uh, in uh, in relation to the goal. Almost like goalkeepers. It was like having seven or eight goalkeepers in the box, and it was incredible. It was incredible defensive organization. It was incredible tactical organization. Uh, so I agree with you. In, in no way do I think that any team can do what Atletico did, Atletico did yesterday. Mm, and I mean, that's, that's the other thing as well, is now we've got Guardiola moving to, to Manchester City. Do you think he's really going to turn around and say, OK, let's abandon everything I've worked on because I lost a, a Champions League semi-final, albeit the, the third one in a row? Of course not. And uh, and that's, that's transitioning into exactly what we want to talk about. There's been so much hyperbole in the media, Chris, and you've seen this all over Twitter. Not only Twitter, like people that you and I respect were talking about Pep's time at Bayern being this incredible failure. But I think we have to be conscious of the, the fact that winning a Champions League isn't a something that you can do just because you're Pep Guardiola and arguably the best coach in the world. He has a style of play and more often than not, it works. And I find it really strange. There's so many respected people in the media who are talking about Pep as this huge failure because he didn't win the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, that's the 
<clears throat> the bizarre thing. I, th- I think the thing with him is, is because he, much like Mourinho in that sense, has been so defined by the Champions League and his early success. Mm-hmm. I think that will so often be the metric that he's defined by moving forward. Look at look at the move to City. The, a lot of people speculate the reason City wants him is to earn that Champions League, is, is to actually right. enter that elite club of teams that have achieved that feat and, you know, stop clubs like Chelsea chanting, uh, you know, Europe, Champions of Europe, you'll never chant that, those kind of little things, <laughs> and elevate their own status, which is is not something Bayern needed, I think right. I would say. What you've got to really look at, I think, and this is why it, it, it takes a, a while to truly, I think, assess a legacy in that regard, because success has a thousand fathers and, and failure is an orphan. See how they play in a year or two. See how the next generation of buying youth comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, because, in fairness, that is one thing he's been criticised for, is not introducing the youth properly. Right. Guys like Sinan and, yeah. and, and maybe not giving Mitchell Weiser the opportunities that he should have had to, to transition him in. I'd say give it 18 months, two years, maybe even a little bit longer, and say, okay, well, what's the, the status of the current buying products coming through at that point? Are they significantly better than those who went before them? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, his legacy can only be defined in, in the future, but right now there has been too much hyperbole, in my opinion, and I, I still think he's an incredibly good coach. He's He's had a lot of success at, at Bayern. Sure, he didn't win a Champions League, but that is such a difficult parameter. And, and to your point, City is bringing him in because Mancini couldn't deliver success in the Champions League, although he won the league. Pellegrini the, uh, all, almost won the league. Same with Pellegrini. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think City's fans will be talking of him as a failure if he, if he, gets, if he gets City to two or three semifinals. I think that's a pretty good return and for any realistic club. I think if if he gets into a semi-final and they play like they did on Wednesday, then they'll be annoyed because I thought they were going to be. I think the other thing you really have to remember with this is not, not every team that won the Champions League was the best team in the competition, which Agreed. In, in itself yeah. is, a, is a kind of another argument that you could sit in a pub and have for hours because a team, and I think fair play to them, Chelsea fans are very honest about this, the Chelsea team that were not the best team in the competition. Absolutely for, not. For large periods under Roberto Di Matteo, they were drab. The game against Barcelona was was much like the, the Madrid, the Atletico Madrid one in that sense. They they sat deep. They knew what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, if if you wanted to be hypercritical of Guardiola, you could forge an argument to say that perhaps he's too he's too kind of too much of an idealist. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. He's, he's too much of an idealist for his own good, and yeah. and that costs him when you need to win and it's that trait that we often identify in Simeone the, the Machiavellian by any means necessary the ends justify the means that yeah. Guardiola maybe doesn't have sometimes and I think maybe that's the only thing you could say is, is holding him back slightly at this point yeah I think Simeone will probably miss the final after his uh, strange <laughs> grabbing of the fourth official towards the end of the game so uh, he'll probably watch, watch the final from the from the sidelines, oh, sorry, from the stands. Let's transition into Guardiola's next club here, Chris. Uh, today's game, Real Madrid versus City, uh, Man City. Not a very attractive game for the neutral, uh, but you know they, neither team owes the neutral anything. Both teams needed to win this game. What I'll say is that the, the best summary I guess you can give of this game is that Real Madrid just did enough and City looked like... A lot of their key players were not up to up to par. 
exactly. I, th I think they were far too meek. They were dominated very easily. And this is a team that spent a lot of money. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, Real Madrid have as well. I don't think anyone will argue that point. I think what mm -hmm. you would say is that losing Vincent Company should at this point not be as drastic or damaging a loss as it still is. Mm -hmm. Because Otamendi costs almost 30 million, Mangala costs 42, I think. Mm -hmm. You, this is the, the real issue with, with, I have with City is that the people in charge of recruitment have consistently let them down. They've gone out and, and been swindled for the most part in Central Europe. For every player they've got, like De Bruyne, there's someone like Otamendi and Jesus Navas who, again, you can really start to be pedantic and say, well, actually Navas costs about 15 million, which is not a huge amount. Then why is he starting? You know, if you if you're going to yeah. spend 15 million on on someone like that, you then I guess he shouldn't be a starter. But the problem is he he doesn't look like creating an assist or an, even a dangerous opportunity for City, and hasn't done for a, a long time. And this is where I think arguably Guardiola could she see the biggest sort of improvement is is in terms of recruitment and, and switching players in now because I imagine for the most part he'll have carte blanche to do that. And but Chris, just playing devil's advocate for a second, can can't you make? I mean, I can make an argument here that City were not outplayed by one of arguably three best teams in the world. Over two legs, they lost. You know, they lost by the narrowest of margins. Margins, uh, and and were up up to par in that sense. Uh, you know, they weren't blown out of the water. It wasn't a four nothing. It wasn't a three nothing. And in generally, I mean, I know the big statistic coming out of the game today is one shot on target for City, but I watched this game and it wasn't like Real Madrid themselves created a ton of chances. So given where Man City are in their project and given when Real Madrid are in the standing of the game, should we be analyzing this City performance with a little bit more credit to what City have done? I think if you're going to look at Bayern and Atletico and, and say that, again, statistics, possession are irrelevant, I think you have to do the same with this one, in, mm. in the sense that again they've they've fallen. They've they went out quite meekly as well. You know, yeah, yeah. At, at yeah. least in in Bayern's case, you can say, well, you know what, they they gave it a heck of a, a go, and they really did kind of take it to Atletico in the same way that Atletico, I thought, defended, you know, expertly. It it that's the issue with it is that it's just not good enough for a team with their aspirations. And this is the I find sometimes the curious thing with City is that. They themselves have very high expectations, but there's mm -hmm. still this kind of weird mentality about the club, like they're in League Two, or uh, excuse me, League One, Division Two, in old money, and it's <laughs> they, they just don't feel like they don't have the aura of an elite club. That's the problem I have with them. Um, I never watch them and feel like, okay, this is a truly earth-shattering club that's on the, the cusp of something brilliant. It still feels like there's a bit of a hangover from the old city, where anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, mm. and, and like I say, I think it goes back to, to some of the signings, guys like Fernando, who I thought was incredibly poor tonight. If you're looking yeah. to scapegoat someone, I think Fernando was the player you're looking at because he's at fault for the, the goal, if I remember correctly. Right. He also looked incredibly, uh, lax and just generally uninterested in the game. He wasn't making himself up for passes. And it's, it's things like that. that that's a key position for City. That's central midfield mm -hmm. where, you know, Guardiola says the game is often won. And you yeah. look at someone like Cruz and Modric and Isco. Modric, who I thought was... It's, it's him yeah. or Cruz for man of the match, realistically. Yeah, Modric was um, terrific. I was surprised to see him subbed off, actually. I thought he was terrific. 
and that's the thing. You you look at that situation and you say, okay, well, Modric was at Tottenham. He was in the Premier League. And, of course, this is sponsored by hindsight. But why aren't they going out and getting Modric? Why, why, why is the talent identification at City at a point where they're not kind of moving? Because this is the thing. All I hear is the City football group. They have scouts everywhere. It's this giant umbrella network. that There's not a player in the world they don't know about. Again, it, with them, it seems like they're still liable to make really questionable decisions. And it's so often players in the spine that let them down. The fact that right. they haven't been able to phase out Torre um, in a in a better with way. Another another very poor performance from Yaya today. Exactly. And I mean, look, there was a Spanish journalist and he may have been um, chancing his arm a bit and being quite rude and saying that he asked Zidane if, if he thought that Torre reflected his, his squad number and looked 42. I, I think that's a bit facetious. I would also caveat it with the fact that having seen him in person this season, he does amble around like a player who is towards the end of his career. He's not right. moving with any of the mobility or agility that so often defined his City career and made him the elite player that won them a Premier League title. And it, Again, it's, it's something that Jean-Michel Olas, the Olympic Lyon chairman, used to say that you should replace your best players before you have to. And it, it sounds like obvious 101, but I, I don't see it with them. And and the fact that there's not even a great deal of, of youth coming through from the academy, yet they've got that great infrastructure. There's just so many... I think if, if I'm Guardiola, I'm well aware I've got my work cut out for me before I even start there, because there is a lot of things that need to improve at that football club if, they, if they're going to achieve what they wish to achieve. Yeah, and from a Real Madrid perspective, we, we've talked about City. One of the things that impressed me, well, first of all, Cristiano was fairly poor today. He had, he had one sh- a shot on goal, but in general, looked like he was uh, recovering from that injury. Bale was definitely um, their main uh, creative outlet. Um, one thing that impressed me from Real Madrid is that I thought they one of the one of the issues Real Madrid has is that they are not able to manage games. So when they're up one nothing, they're not able to close out games. They're not able to hold on to the lead. In this game, however, I thought there was some good man management, a game management from Real Madrid, and I think that bodes well because that will probably come into play in the final. So early, it's early right now. You know, injuries will come up and all that sort of thing. But your favorite for the final between the two Madrid teams, Chris. I feel like my heart is speaking at this precise moment because I'm going to say Atletico. I think, mm-hmm. again, you, you look at the way that they beat Bayern, you look at the way they beat Barcelona, you've got to think that that plan works again against right. Real Madrid, who are, who are not as organised and not as focused as, as the two teams that I just mentioned. And equally, again, you look at that fine margin. It's a Sergio Ramos header is the difference between Atletico and, and Madrid, uh, Atletico and Real um, picking up the Champions League last time they faced each other. Right, right. Absolutely, good point. So we'll get to, we'll definitely be covering that Champions League final at a future date. But for now, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will preview uh, seven of the ten Premier League games. Uh, we'll look forward to that. This was the end of Section 1 of the World Soccer Talk podcast. We'll be right back. Games between Bournemouth and West Brom, Crystal Palace and Stoke, as well as the game between Liverpool and Watford have very little bearing on the league right now. So we will be skipping those games today so that we can focus in on the slightly more important games. So let's start, Chris, with the Norwich-Manchester United game. It's the early kickoff on Saturday. 
it has bearing on both uh, the relegation battle as well as the top four. Uh, United doesn't have a great record away from home. Uh, and on the other hand, Norwich have really struggled at home in 2016. Uh, the one player that I think we'll see is Juan Mata. He has a really good record against Norwich. And similarly, um, Lingard has uh, struggled in the last couple of games. So I think we'll see Juan Mata come in. Any thoughts on this Norwich uh, United game, Chris? I, th- I think the pressure for Norwich here is to essentially produce some quality. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about this previously, that I think that's been the issue for them, is that those clutch players, as, as you say in American sports, have just been mm-hmm. missing for them. They, they, a guy like Cameron Jerome is is perhaps harsh to scapegoat. I also think he's yeah. a good example of a player that will ver- do very well for you in the championship, but hasn't really been able to ever make that step up and consistently perform in the Premier League. He's had opportunities, but he's just never been able to, to cement right. it there. And that's why I think, again, you sleep it in hindsight and say, if, if Dia Mercy and Bacani's there from the start, how does that change things? The good mm-hmm. thing is they've got someone like him and they've got Robbie Brady. They've certainly got game changers. The issue, I think, and, and part of the reason that Norwich are in the position they're in is that I don't know if you can rely on those guys 38 games a season to do that. I think they'll produce it every now and again, but you need to share that burden. You need to share that load. And in many ways, that's a problem I think that Manchester United have have faced in the sense that so often it's been Anthony Martial or own goal in that regard. Like, if if he's not doing it for them, if, excuse me, if he's not carrying the ball and being that danger, you're looking for that, that sort of pace shifter. And someone mm-hmm. that can take what is a very standstill game and just ramp it up very quickly in a short space of time. Um, and he does that. In terms of the result, it's so difficult to predict because you don't know which Man United team are going to turn up. I mean, right. again, you've you've seen them significantly more than I have, so I feel like if anyone's best placed to, to, to predict that, it's probably yourself. I, I mean, you can have you could have someone that's only watched Man United games their whole life and they'll not be able to tell you what Man United will show up this season. Chris, it's, it's been all over the place and uh, there's really been no method to the madness. I think anytime anyone predicts they'll do one thing, they do something else. Uh, so from a United perspective, I, I, I don't know which team will show up. Obviously, they're United are strong favorites, uh, even though they're playing away from home and Norwich uh, are battling for this, this final, uh, you know, these last couple of games to stay in the Premier League. Um, it, it depends on Martial, and, and it depends on the fact that Fellaini is going to be suspended. Uh, so either Schneiderlin and, or Herrera come into that position. Does he play Rooney in that 4-3-3, or does he, uh, and he should, take Rooney out of the team, which he won't do? So there are lots of questions and very few answers. But from a Norse perspective, I'll end on this, uh, Chris. I, I think um, if I were a Norse supporter, I would be hoping that they roll the dice and play all the like, all of the, the main cast. I'm talking about Mobikani, Robbie Brady, Wes Holahan, as well as uh, um, uh, Stephen Naismith, and hope that they can put away a couple of goals. Because uh, if you put United under pressure, th- it has been clear this season that United has struggled to come back from be- uh, from a goal down. So let's move ahead to your team now, Chris. Villa, Newcastle. Uh, I thought at this point, Villa would still be in the relegation battle, but they're clearly not anymore in the sense that they're already relegated. Newcastle have everything to play for, however, Chris, as you know. Uh, their final game is against Spurs, which probably, even after, uh, even though we expect a couple of Spurs players to get bans, it'll be too much of a task for Newcastle to negotiate. 
Uh, Benitez needs to go for the win, first of all, Chris, and they need to really improve the goal difference. Uh, one thing I noticed was that Newcastle's goal difference is very similar to Norwich's, whereas Sunderland's is much better. So that will probably come, possibly come into play. And this is a game that Newcastle will try to win by two or three goals even. Definitely. I, th- I think what you could say is that to watch this Benitez side as, as they picked up, it's very much been founded on building from the back and and being a team that is defensive first, attacking right. second. And I, I think but he, he can't do that in this game, right? He kind of has to. Well, that's the thing is that it actually you could run the risk of if if you abandon that approach just because it's sure. a, you chronically underestimate them and, and cause yourself needless problems in that regard, mm-hmm. and, and maybe open yourself up because look, this Villa side found the net twice against Watford who admittedly are not in the greatest of form. I still right. think you have to take that into consideration. I think, again, the second you even start to worry about goal difference, I think you've taken your eye off the bigger prize, which is the points. Um, right. Because at the minute, it, it's the points that will keep Newcastle up. And again, they've got that very slim advantage at this precise moment. There's an opportunity with that game to then kind of extend that further, assuming that, that Sunland and Norwich can't pick up some points themselves. They'll know going into the Norwich game what the situation is like, or at least have a little bit of a clearer picture. And then you've mm-hmm. got those midweek games. I think, personally, I, you know, I've, I've been asked about this a lot, I, I think you'll have the greatest picture of this going into those midweek games. Once they're finished, mm. once the final whistle goes then, there's no advantages. It comes down to the very final day of the season. Um... But, but saying that, it could easily be tied up by 5 o'clock on Saturday if, if Newcastle <coughs> pick up a point or, or pick up three points and then Sunderland and Norwich really kind of tank themselves. So right. there's a lot of moving parts to this one. And I think in that regard, it's often when the oldest football cliches start to, to make sense in terms of I think they just have to focus on their game. I think mm-hmm. the more they point watch, the more they clock watch, the more trouble they're going to get themselves in. They know they've got two games that for very different reasons, are winnable in the sense that Villa have nothing to play for. Tottenham are looking a little bit ragged at this precise moment based on the Chelsea game. Mm-hmm. When you've got those opportunities, focus on them because I think the second you start to worry about others slipping up is, is when you'll likely get let down. Let's move ahead to the Sunderland-Chelsea game then, Chris. Um, the hi- history is against Sunderland in this game. They were a really poor record against Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea, as we talked about on the review part on Monday, a uh, very in much improved performance against Tottenham. But do you think they'll revert back to the performances from the rest of the season? Or will we actually see what might be a resurgent Chelsea? I think that's a, a brilliant question, to be honest. I, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because no one knows the answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think that is the, the $64 million question. We're, yeah, we're not yeah. terribly sure because... Again, even the record seems so redundant given Chelsea this season. Um, right. And in, and in fairness, I remember going to watch them play each other at the Stadium of Light and, and Chelsea narrowly winning 4-3. Mm-hmm. Again, there's so many moving parts with this one in the sense that Sunderland, for the most part, under Sam Allardyce, have been very defensive, very deep. They haven't taken as many risks as perhaps they should have. And it's that same notion again of you're at home, I imagine the stadium will be packed because, again, the fans are, are very loyal and very consistent there. Do you then arguably need to go out and attack Chelsea because I feel as if if you sit off them and just expect them to make mistakes, 
you're just going to put yourself under needless pressure. There needs to be a slight change in mentality from Allardyce, and I'm not sure if he has that in him because his methods are, he would argue, probably proven to have worked. And he's a lot more experienced than some normal 27-year-old um, <laughs> on a podcast. I just think he does need to take more risks. Though. I think he needs to put some forwards up there. I think he needs to, to mix things up because, admittedly, he's not going for goal difference. But given how few they've scored lately, I wouldn't like to try and hold on to a 1-0 result with the last 10 minutes right. because consistently that's when, when Sutherland have been let down, Southampton and Newcastle and, and all these other results. Yeah, the two the two key uh, players for each the one key player for each team is a Defoe obviously for Sunderland and then Fabregas for Chelsea who has a really good record against Sunderland. Uh, let's talk about let's move to the other end of the table. The top four battle still involves West Ham. They play Swansea this week. Uh, the big key thing I think in this game will be Swansea are exceptionally susceptible to corners, and we know that West Ham is a team that can take advantage of that because they have the likes of Andy Carroll on that team. Exactly. And, and you know, Andy Carroll is making a bizarre late search for the England team, it seems like. Yeah. Um, he always does this, right? Just before the championships, everyone everyone's like, why don't you take Andy Carroll? He's doing so well. And then he gets injured or shows up and does absolutely nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's, there's still that memory of the Sweden game from, I think it was Euro 2012. Right. Um, right where he was quite dominant and, and really did kind of live up to what people expected him to be. Mm-hmm. I just, it, it's this thing with the West Ham team is that, again, I feel like if you can stop Pye, you can stop West Ham. And and again, that may be reductive. Right now, you've got to stop Mark Noble. Well, yeah. I mean, even, <laughs> even he's got England kind of credentials to consider. Yeah. But I, and I do apologise if I offend West Ham fans with my evaluation. It's just based on when, it, when I've watched them. I mean, they came to St. Mm-hmm. James's Park and I was there and Again, it felt like if you can shut Dimitri Payet down, you can kind of shut West Ham down in the final third. Um, and I think yeah. even when he's not directly involved in the play, the attention right. that he draws opens up space for others. Um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's entirely fair, Chris. I, I actually agree with you. I think uh, the, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark Noble is having uh, the form he is having. It's because. Uh, in my opinion, Pai is drawing players towards him and leaving Mark Noble open for uh, those late in into the box runs that early on were just being because he's not the fastest player in the world, Mark Noble. So the only way he's going to go past a player if, is if the player is watching someone else and that other p- person happens to be Pai. Exactly, and I mean, you know, the, their opposition themselves are, are far from the most consistent. Um, in the sense that they can lose to Newcastle and then beat Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So, right. Swansea themselves are, I mean, clearly you've got a Swansea fan in the house, so I'll be careful what I say next. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's my issue with Swansea, is for a team that had such a kind of defined style of play and were so consistent when they came into this league with Brendan Rodgers, um, and then also kind of Gary Monk as well, I just can't predict them at this precise moment. There's moments right. where, again, you look at someone like Paloski and you say, OK, I know exactly what I'm going to get from him or I know what to expect from him. Same with Sigurdsson, who, again, is not the quickest but consistently finds dangerous space and opportunities. And I just... I really have no idea with Swansea. That's the thing. I fully expected them to turn up to St. James's Park and get a result, and they didn't. I fully expected mm-hmm. them to get beat off Liverpool, and they didn't. It's... It's such a bizarre duality with them. But then they go smash City. It could have been more than 4-2. So, yeah, the, it, we just don't know which 
Swansea shows up. You're absolutely right about that. Um, let's talk about another team that's very unpredictable, and that's Everton. Uh, Leicester has already won the league. They host Everton. Um, this this game has doesn't have consequences in terms of the league table per se, but in terms of the fact uh, that Martinez's future is still under uh, question. And a poor result in this game would probably highlight the fact that a club that has spent way less money than they have has won the league, whereas Martinez is uh, dropping points with Everton. So any predictions for this game? Because I, I actually fancy Everton in this one. Yeah, I, I think that's not a terrible shout. And, and largely that may be rooted in the fact that Leicester have just come off possibly the biggest party that's ever been thrown in. A Jamie Vardy party. Yeah, <laughs> in British history. Um <laughs> The one thing I would say is if if I was putting a, a bet on this game is that I don't think Ranieri will want to end this season meekly. I think he'll want consistency and he'll want mm-hmm. to end it on the high because, again, it, you could argue it was the form of the season previous that helped them this season to begin right. with. And, and why would you want to you know, damp out that in the end of the campaign? Because, again, a lot of people are saying that this is not so much about Leicester now. It's actually about the the collective brain freeze of everybody else that's given them this opportunity when I think that's quite unfair. I think they've done yeah, a very good job. Yeah. Um, and equally, you know, again, it, it's that idea of Everton need to win more. I think you touched on it mm-hmm. there and you they really do because at the minute, I, I, I really can't think of anyone on Merseyside other than Liverpool fans who want Roberto Martinez to stay there. Um, and it's, it's that idea of is it the end for him? Because I, I don't think the project's advanced as much as it should have. I, I think we're seeing a, a, a repeat of Wigan in, in so many bad ways. A project that has advanced really well, uh, even though they've finished second, is Tottenham. And Tottenham plays Southampton this weekend. Uh, I think this will be probably the most entertaining game, even though we'll talk about uh, the pick of the weekend in a minute. But I think this will probably be the most entertaining game of the weekend. I think Southampton are finding... the They're also a bit of a up-and-down team like we've discussed with Everton and uh, and Swansea, etc. But I think they are coming, uh, enjoying one of their crests right now. Mane is in form, uh, and I think with Spurs playing the kind of football they do, uh, even on the back of a disappointing result against Chelsea, I think this will be a very entertaining game. Definitely, and I think what I would say about Southampton is, and it's something I've not seen mentioned as much, is that when they were really struggling... Jordi Klasser wasn't in the team and and Klasser mm-hmm. for me was essentially brought in to dictate things and and orchestrate things from from the midfield so his absence was actually much bigger than it seemed because they didn't have someone to put a foot on the ball in that sense I think getting him back again having just a little bit more fluency and understanding it's improved them a lot because now they know how each other all want to play around and, and relative to, to each other that makes a big difference um in terms of Tottenham, again, it's it's a similar situation to Leicester, but for very different reasons. I think at this point they want to win because they don't want their season to fizzle out. They don't want it right. to feel like it's been a compound failure because at the minute all that's happened for, for them, rightly or wrongly, is that the stereotype of Tottenham has been reinforced, that they can't do the job, that they can't achieve what they need to achieve. But I think... That in itself is, is quite harsh because the fixtures were not the easiest set for them, I think we have to remember. And again, it's the idea of there's been a lot achieved by Pochettino. It's just unfortunately been overshadowed by what is a, a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation 
event in, in, in Leicester City. And then the final game that we're going to discuss tonight is the big one. It's Manchester City versus Arsenal. The kickoff is on Sunday. Big implications for top four. I think Arsenal are pretty safe at this point. They have a, uh, a, a three-point uh, yeah, three uh, gap from City and a seven-point gap from United. But if Arsenal loses, City will be equal on points with them. And I think both teams will be good for the top four. However, the bigger pressure is on City. Because having gone out of the Champions League uh, t- today, uh, or yes, when, whenever they played yesterday or today, uh, and if they, if they drop points in this game and United wins against Norwich and wins against West Ham on Tuesday, United will be fourth going into the final match day. Exactly. I, I think what I would say is I'm not sure if, if the pressure is on City as much as the Arsenal. Because the thing with City is they're fully aware that things are about to change in terms of the coaching staff. Arsenal, there's a genuine division between those who want it to change and those who don't. And this game is an opportunity to essentially stamp a mark on the situation and say, we can still compete with the elite and we can beat them, which is essentially what Wenger is trying to prove, I think, unintentionally or otherwise. And if they don't win this game, then you have to say it, it does, whether you agree with it or not, give strength to those who are holding up the signs, who are saying it's time for change. Because, again, City at the minute, they're a bit of a wounded animal. They've just mm-hmm. come out of a competition quite meekly. They're, they're looking for, for kind of some semblance of reason to the, the season outside of um, winning the, the League Cup. Yeah, what I'll say is that I, I just feel that, that uh, City are still in, under a lot of pressure because if they miss out on top four here, which really is under question, uh, because if they drop points here, and as I said, if United win both those games, uh, including the game they have in hand, they will miss out on top four. And then will Guardiola be able to attract the kind of players that he wants to to, to start the rebuilding job? Because as you rightly pointed out, I think there's still a feeling about City that it isn't this behemoth. You know, they are attracting players based on money and based on uh, the status of Champions League. And if we take one of those out of the equation, will they be able to attract the level of players? So I think that's why City is actually under a lot of pressure, maybe a little bit more pressure than Arsenal. Although your points about Arsenal are well taken. The one thing standing against them, Chris, also is City have their worst record historically against Arsenal compared to any other Premier League op- opponent. So I know that that draws on a lot of years of failure for City, uh, but that's something to consider. And what else, one, one final thing here. I really want to see Hinacho start. I think one thing that we didn't discuss when we were talking about the uh, Champions League game is how surprising it was that Pellegrini left it until the 70th minute to bring on his basically his, his best goal scorer right now, especially when they were chasing after a goal. So surely Hinacho will play a much larger role in the game against Arsenal based on what we saw today. Yeah, I think he has to. Um, I think it would be weird if he didn't at this point. And in fairness, I think a lot of City fans are calling for that as well. The difficulty comes in, I think we discussed at the weekend, that he should have been starting against Real Madrid. So Right. You can never truly understand a manager because so often and understandably they're, they're in a bubble of their own. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Uh, from an Arsenal perspective, I think Welbeck would probably start. He does well against City. And uh, we know that Casola, Catorla is back to full fitness or somewhere close to that. So maybe he'll be involved, maybe off the bench. Um, so in order to analyze the results of all of those games and update you on key games around Europe, 
We will be back on Sunday for the review podcast. It'll be Chris Karthik and myself once more. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you can find Chris at K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E, K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E, me at Nipun Chopra 7, and you can find World Soccer Talk at W Soccer Talk. So until then, on behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk, the gaffer Chris Harris, Chris Hanaj and myself, Nabun Chopra, I bid you to enjoy your football. <laughs>